Uh, today, uh, like I said, we're doing something different. We're starting a brand new series called Big Questions. I've never done this before where, uh, where we just let people ask questions and then we try to answer them. Um, and so what we did is we, we've been putting out uh, you know, places for you guys to ask us some questions and send us some, some questions, and we're going to attempt to answer those questions. You may or may not like our answers. We may or may not like our answers. We'll just see how it goes. Um, but we got a variety of questions, uh, so much so that we had to break them down into categories to try to figure out how to answer them, and we kind of grouped them together. So today we decided to just dip our toe in, uh, the shallow end on answering these questions um, before we get into some really hard stuff, today we decided to tackle all the questions about the Old Testament. So that is supposed to be the, the easy one, right? So it just gives you an idea of what the hard ones are going to be like. Um, so we're going to ask some questions about the Old Testament. And these are questions actually written in um, by some of you. To be honest with you, some of these questions are some of the best questions we got asked, and they were written by teenagers. So um, I really like that, that part of it. But before we get into this, I want to kind of introduce the whole series um, today by, by talking about questions. A lot of times we're told not to ask questions. Like in a lot of religions, um, in a lot of places, you're kind of pushed, or maybe even in churches, we're kind of pushed to this place where you don't really ask questions, that it's not okay to ask why. Have you ever felt that way in any situation, maybe with your parents, maybe with your job, maybe with your church, that you just don't feel okay to ask why? Well, we want to take that away. We, we feel like it's good to ask questions. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, um, a lot of people ask questions. And I just want to give you a couple of quick little thoughts here. First of all, questions are good. Questions help us grow. Did you know that the most um, intellectual growth that you have in your lifetime is whenever you're like between the ages of four and ten? One of the reasons for that is if you've got a four-year-old, you know everything is a question. My son, my youngest son is 10 years old, and we get in the car, and no matter where we're going, I'm going to get at least 30 questions on the way from my house to the gas station, right? And half of those questions are stupid, but it's okay because he's just learning, right? He's just asking questions, and that helps him grow. And here's the other thing. A question researched and answered builds my faith. Think about that for a second. When I have a question and I research and find an answer... It builds my faith. So it's important to have questions. Questions are good. As a matter of fact, I, I just jotted down a couple of little scriptures here um, about the disciples. The disciples ask questions in, in Mark 4, 7, and then Luke 8, they ask questions about parables. So Jesus is teaching, and this is the picture I get in my head, is Jesus is teaching this great message, and as soon as and the disciples are over there amening him, and they're like, great job, Jesus, you're doing awesome, Jesus, and as soon as the message is over, and they go back behind stage, the disciples are like, hey, we didn't understand anything you were saying. Right? Can you explain to us what you meant when you said that about the yeast and the, and the bread? And, and they didn't understand, so they had to ask questions. In Matthew 17 and also in Mark 16, they're asking Jesus, why can't we drive out the demons? Like, like we see you do it, and we're struggling today. Why is it that we can't do what you do? In Mark 10, they ask questions about the law of Moses. And Jesus goes through this whole thing about divorce and remarriage. And after it was all over, the disciples come back and specifically ask about divorce. It makes me wonder if one of them was divorced. I don't know. They're asking questions. In Mark 13, they ask about the future and they ask about Jesus' resurrection. And then in Acts 1-6, they want to know, is it time to establish the kingdom? The disciples asked a bunch of questions. We should be asking questions. It's okay to ask questions. Here's the problem. Sometimes it's in how we ask a question. Right? Married couples, tell me that's not the truth. It's okay for your spouse to ask a question. Sometimes it's just how they ask a question. Right? If you, if you had an off day and you got to stay home, or maybe you work from home, Jordan, and you're at home working all day, and Anna's at work all day, and she comes home, and she asks the question, what did you do today, Jordan? That's a very great question, and you would answer that question, and y'all would have a great conversation. But if she walks in, and she sees laundry still on the floor, and she's like, what did you do today, Jordan? And then all of a sudden, the question is a little bit different, right? How we approach it is important. How we approach it's important. <laughs> so let me give you a couple of foundational truths that you need to have in your life before you start asking God any questions. 
Number one, you need to remember that I am not God's judge. I am not God's judge. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. You need to understand today, you're not the judge of God. It's not up to you to determine His, his thoughts or His purposes. It's not up to you to, to tell Him what is right and what is wrong. He, in and of Himself, understands what is right and what is wrong. He knows everything, not you and not me. So when I look back at the Bible and I say, how could a loving God do this? I need to understand that he is a loving God, but I can't put my thoughts in his brain. It doesn't work like that. I can't judge him. Point number two, God doesn't work or think the way I do. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. That word thought there means designs, intentions, plots, purposes, and plans. God says, look, I've got a whole purpose. I've got things going on that you can't even imagine. I've got stuff happening in the past and the future. I've got stuff going on that I'm setting up, and you don't understand what's happening. We need to understand that God doesn't think the same way we think. He doesn't act the same way we act. The word ways there means journey or manner of doing. In other words, God says, I'm on a path that you don't understand. I'm doing things in a way that you would never do them because you're human and your, your mind and your culture can only take you so far. Something I've noticed is we are always influenced by culture. We're always influenced by culture. You think about 1950s or 1940s and the way people talked and acted was very different than the way they talk and act today. You think about the 1800s, the way they talked and acted and even thought about about life and about God is very different than the way we think and, and, and pursue things today. Why? Because culture dictates a lot of that. God's, God lives in a place outside of our culture. So our culture doesn't, doesn't determine how he acts or how he thinks. And we need to understand that today. Another one is this. God sees a bigger picture than I can see. And I really like this one. And this is, we're about to get into the questions. But in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, it says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, and from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Let me tell you something about God. God says, i got this whole plan working right now that you don't understand. He says, I've got a man in the far east that I'm already bringing in to establish something and you can't see him. But just because you can't see him doesn't mean I don't have parts moving on the board. I love Monopoly. Who loves Monopoly? Anybody? Anybody? Yes, I love Monopoly. And I've got a Monopoly strategy. Um, I watched a documentary on Monopoly one time. And in the documentary, this guy breaks down mathematically and strategically which properties are the best properties to buy. And if you buy these properties, your chances of winning are like 90%. I'm not going to say the properties, because one day you'll want to play me a Monopoly, and you won't let me get my properties, right? So I play Monopoly all the time on my phone. It's my time killer game, and, and I always win just about every time because I buy these certain properties but whenever I play with other people they're like why would you even want that property I'm like don't worry about it don't worry about what I'm doing and the whole time I'm like buying and selling and trading only to get a specific number of properties that I want and I know that if I can ever get these properties then I can win the game but my opponent doesn't understand my plan and my strategy and he doesn't understand why I'm giving up so many good properties for this one garbage property but I know if I can get that garbage property in play I can win the game. Sometimes we don't understand God and we read the Bible, we read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, we look at our life and we don't understand what God's doing and you're like, God, this is stupid. Like this is foolishness. God, why would you allow this to happen? And God's saying, I'm setting up properties to win the game. I'm buying and selling and moving pieces to win the game. You don't see it because you're only looking at it right here, but I can see it from a bigger picture and I know the end from the beginning, he said in that verse. 
And so today, before we get into any kind of questions, and for the next couple of weeks as we answer a bunch of questions and ask a bunch of questions, you need to understand that you and I are not God. We can't judge him. We can't think like him. We don't have his plans. And as long as we can understand that, then the questions are going to be a much easier to answer. Amen? Amen. All right, question number one. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just throw out these questions. We're going to let Bobby and Dad participate. Um, it's hard when you get three preachers on the same stage, right? And we give them all three a microphone. That's trouble. Right off the bat, that's trouble. We may not get out of here for a while today. So let's, think, let's look at question number one. We're going to start off with the easy one. Um, how could there have been dinosaurs on the ark? Who wants to answer that? Bobby, I know you've got to answer. Yeah, this one, uh, this one came from uh, my household, so my daughter asked this question. I think it's a good one uh, on that. So a, a couple of verses, I've been asked several times, were there dinosaurs in the Bible? Uh, so a couple of verses to throw out there to you guys first. You know, Job 40 talks about, behold, behemoth, uh, which I made, uh, which I made as I made you, Isaiah 27. Uh, in that day, the Lord, with his hand, uh, me, with, his, with his heart and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the bleeding serpent. Bobby said he wasn't there. Dad, you were there. Did you, um, did you, do you remember? You remember? Okay. Um, something, something, uh, again, you guys know I'm a nerd. So uh, I watched a TED Talk one time with the paleontologist. It was not Christian at all. And uh, the paleontologist was debunking the idea of uh, hundreds of species of dinosaurs. And, and he said, if you look at dinosaurs, uh, dinosaurs are similar to birds and reptiles, right? In the way they develop and they grow. And he looked at three different types of triceratops. Y'all remember triceratops, the one with the two horns here and one horn here, right? Y'all are looking at me like, what? Um, so anyways, triceratops. And he says, he says, I want you to look at these three different species of triceratops that, that modern paleontologists have determined are three different species. He said, and, um, he said, but I want you to notice something. All three species are different sizes. And I started thinking. I was like, yeah. And then he, said, and then he brought up the cassowary bird. And this is a bird that they have in Australia, and it's got this big, or Indonesia somewhere, it's got this big crest on its head, like a big bony crest on its head. He said, I want you to look at this bird, and then I want you to look at this other version of it. And it was another version of the bird, and it had a, like a little crest on its head. And then they looked at another bird that was smaller, had no crest on its head. He said, it's the same bird, just at three different ages. He says, as a bird develops, the bony crest begins to grow and develop until it comes to maturity. He said the three different dinosaurs that I'm showing you today are the same exact dinosaur, just at three different ages. He said, so when scientists tell you that there are hundreds or thousands of different species of dinosaurs, I'm here to tell you they're not. And so something to think about whenever we talk about dinosaurs in the ark, we weren't there. At the end of the day, does it change my faith? Absolutely not. To me, dinosaurs on an ark make no difference to you know, Jesus saving my life. But it's fun to talk about. But one of the things I think about is, first of all, we don't know if they were babies or not. And we don't know how many species of dinosaurs were around. So just something, something neat to think about. Um, question number two. Why is the Bible not written in chronological order? Why is the Bible not written in chronological order? Well... You want to answer that? Yeah. Uh, the Bible was written in a chronological order. But the Bible wasn't put together chronologically. 
uh, if the people that wrote it wrote it at their at their age time frame, so it was chronological in that sense. But it's divided up into different sections. So instead of it being placed chronologically for you, it's placed more categorically for you. And that is things about the law. Are there going to be poetry, books on poetry going to be together? The prophets are put together. So it's put together more for us in, in a sense of categories rather than put together in chronology. And the other problem with this is, is we need to read the Bible. We, we need to read the Bible. And as you read the Word of God, starting at Genesis and you come through and read the Word of God, it doesn't matter the chronology of it, because that will be put together. When you get down to uh, Israel and fighting their battles and what they did, you can find, uh, find it in chronological order. But as far as the Bible as a whole, it doesn't matter. It matters that we get the gist and the mind of God about what he's putting together for us. So instead of you worrying about why is it not chronological, it doesn't matter. It matters that I read that word and understand it in the essence that God gives it to me. Does that make sense to y'all? In other words, it's put together in categories rather than put together for us in uh, chronological order. The other thing on that when it comes to the chronology of the Bible, um, one of the things Perry does is she does Bible reading plans that are, sometimes she'll do the ones that are in chronological order. And so you can find a Bible reading plan that will take the scriptures, break them apart, and put them all in chronological order. And it will kind of jump you around from book to book, but you kind of see the story as it goes through history, and that's always very interesting. Um, I just wrote down the different, the different categories. He mentioned some of them. You got the law, the history, the poetry, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And then in the New Testament, you got the life of Christ, this first, and then the history of the church. And then you get Paul's letters to churches, and then Paul's letters to individuals. And then you get other people writing letters. And so they break the, the Bible down into all of these different categories so it's easier for us, some, for some people, to go and find the information they want to find, right? But at the end of the day, it's all one story. And that's the thing you've got to remember. It's all God's story. It's all God's plan, no matter how it's put together. Did you want to say something about that? Yeah, I think it's really cool when we talk about that, too, to look at the authority of the Bible. Um, you know, and breaking this down. So the Bible itself is one of the most used books out there, period. So science uses it, history uses it, whatever goes back and researches. One of the great writings was that of Alexander the Great. And that, that was written some 400-ish years after his death, and it's considered gospel on what happened with Alexander the Great. You can actually backdate a lot of the gospels to within 30 or 40 years of Jesus' death. So historically, it's like a nanosecond of when these were written after Jesus passed away. So the, historic, the, the accuracy of that just ramps up even more. I think it's real important to note the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years and over a dozen countries on three different continents by 40 writers that included pastors, murderers, tax collectors, it was written from caves and jail cells, written part in the wilderness. You know, but it only had one author, and that was God, which allowed 1,600 years of writing to all have the same fluent, congruent message and all point to Christ through the whole thing. Mm. And that is just so powerful to me when we think about it. Yeah, we can break it down. You can get different translations and read it uh, as is. You can read it in the individual books. You can read it chronologically. But it's so powerful how amazing God is and the authority of the Word of God that has been ever-changing for that long of a period of time. 1,600 years in its developed writing, and look at what we still got today. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, here's another question. Why don't we obey all the laws today, first of all? And second of all, why do we still teach them? Like, why do we even talk about the laws? Why do we talk about the Old Testament if we're not going to obey the laws? And, and you think about some of these laws. I'm going to throw this out there because inevitably I'm going to have somebody say tattoos are wrong, right? And someone else is going to say tattoos are okay. And then I get in this argument because people are going to argue tattoos. Yeah. I don't know why it's always tattoos, but it's always tattoos. And here's the thing is someone's going to say, someone's going to say, well... You, if you have tattoos, right, if you, or if you don't have tattoos, if you don't believe in tattoos, what about bacon, right? We eat pork. What about mixing linen and, and cotton or whatever the case is? We do that too. And so we get into these debates about the laws and we say, yeah, but, but Jesus said no more. So I want to just talk, we're going to get into Jesus abolishing the law, but I want to talk first about why don't we obey the laws and then why do we still teach them if we don't obey them? I'll let you start on that one since you're the oldest, you were there. So when we wrote this law... <laughs> you and Moses, right? Back, you just yeah, back, when, back when Mo and I went up on the mountain, 
one of the things that we need to probably collect in our minds, uh, we think of the laws of God and we think about all of these do's and don'ts. And uh, so let me just help you on some of that. There were 613 civil laws, civil laws. How, which side of the road do we drive on here in America? Right side. Right side. The right side. Which side do they drive on in England? The left side. Okay. If an Englishman comes to America, which side of the road is he supposed to drive on? Right side. Right side. It's a civil law. If I go to England, I have to change and, 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 and conform to whatever the civil law is. It's for the protection of a society. So they had civil laws. Uh, the eating of pork was actually uh, more of a ceremonial law. So let me break the law up at least in three, three phases. There's the civil law or the cultural law, what's built for a culture or society. There's a ceremonial law or the religious law. And that may have to do with wearing the linen and the, uh, and the wool or even on the cleanliness and the washings. All of that was ceremonial for priesthood. And so for you to worship in a certain way, you had to do those things. And another thing about those laws, they were given to Israel. They were given to Israel. And we don't really have to buy into all of those laws because they were for a nation to get a nation someplace, to take them from one place to another. When we get to the moral law, and that's the third area of the law, and that's really the one that concerns us is the moral law. We look at the Ten Commandments as the moral law, and that gives us at least the, the place where we start. And some people say, well, there are the Ten Commandments and the, the law of God, and the, you can't do this and can't do that. Uh, there was a little kid uh, that was talking to his mom and dad, and they, he told them, he said, they asked him what he learned in Sunday school, and he said, we learned the thou shalts. And they said, the thou shalts? Yeah, you know, the thou shalt not do whatever. And, you know, and instead of him going thou shalt not and emphasizing the not, he emphasized what I can do. So he figured there are ten things I can do. And we look at it many times as a restriction what I can't do and what God's trying to do for us is give us a moral position and it's a relationship. So think of Ten Commandments not as being a law that's restricting you, but it's a place of relationship with you and God that we're going to put him first. That we have no other gods. There are, there's not an idol. The first four are going to be about God. The next six are about our relationship with man. And, and another thing about the moral law of God, and we talk about the Old Testament, and we, we go to uh, the 20th chapter of Exodus and go there into Deuteronomy and pull out the Ten Commandments, but you need to realize that the moral law of God was from, from Adam and Eve. It, it didn't start with the Ten Commandments, y'all. So the moral law of God is really a pre-commandment, a pre-covenant, uh, Old Testament covenant. It goes pre-law, it goes pre-Moses. It goes back to the fact that Adam and Eve were under some restrictions, weren't they? Mm -hmm. And there was, a moral, there was a moral law for them. When Cain and Abel had their conflict, there was a moral law there. We know that there were also sacrifices at that time. We don't have an understanding of that, but we know that God didn't just start on the Ten Commandments and say, y'all going to do this. There's a moral system with God. And the, the Ten Commandments are really what we focus on. Uh, because inside of that, it's going to build our relationship with God. And inside of that, it's going to build our relationship with other people. Does that make sense to you somewhat? Now, the other 613 of these laws, uh, they may be adopted. You, there may be something there. You say, well, I like that. And I'm going to do that. You can, but they're not a restriction for you. The other thing is when you come to the New Testament, you say, well, there is no law in the New Testament. I, I, we, we, we don't have time to go into all of this, but I would just challenge you to read the, the book of Romans, uh, especially the fifth chapter. I would challenge you to read the book of Galatians, uh, uh, especially the fifth chapter, but even but all of Galatians. Read it. But if you read those, you'll find where, where Paul begins to deal with the law and grace. And one of the things the Word of God tells us is that God's idea of the law was not that you would hang it up in the courthouse, but He could put it in your heart. Mm -hmm. right. So the goal of the law was not for something I've got to obey in the sense of write it down and I'll do it, just like you know the police are telling me how fast I can drive, then I've got to do that and put it on a sign for me. God said, I don't want it on a sign. I don't want it on stone. I want it in your heart. 
So for me personally, if I'm dealing with a situation that's uncomfortable or something I don't know about, then my responsibility to God is, is Spirit, what do you say? Holy Spirit, what are you telling me about this? What is it I really need to be doing with this? And there are a lot of us that would make the right decision if we would just wait a moment and find out what God's saying to us. What the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And not what someone else told me and not what someone else is doing. But what is the Holy Spirit saying? That's really where he's going when it comes to the law. Does that help you a little bit on that? So is there a law and are we under it? And what, how much of it do we take? Yes, there is a law and we are under it. And the Bible says it this way in the New Testament. It says that we're free from the law as far as we think about the Old Testament. But how are we free from it? He says we are now under the law of the Spirit. So there is still a law. The law of spirit and grace is a law for us. We don't like that because it sounds like legalism, but we need to know that we're responsible. You mamas and daddies and y'all that got engaged and going to be uh, mamas and daddies, I will guarantee you, you will have some kind of restriction for your children of things they can do and not do. You do it for their health. You do it for their well-being. You do it so they go to heaven. There are a lot of reasons why you're going to do it, but you're going to do it and you will be okay with what you do. Because you're the one in charge of that situation. God is in charge of the situation. I think Pastor Gabriel made it very clear that I don't think for him. I don't tell him what he needs to think about this issue. What I need to find out is what is he thinking about it and then get in line with that. Yeah. I think, too, <clears throat> something to think about. I love what you said about the law being on the heart. You, just, you think about for a minute what you know is right and wrong, the things that you know are right and wrong <clears throat> before anybody tells you. Right? So, goodness gracious, I'm losing it. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the um, C.S. Lewis. Tell me about the C.S. Lewis thing you and I were talking about, about the, the mom. Yes, yeah, so I think it's really interesting. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity uh, Forever Ago. If you don't, haven't read it, it's a great read. It's very deep. It's about that thick, and it took forever for me to get through it. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist that basically, in a short version, set out to disprove, you know, set out to prove that God did not exist. Uh, that was his whole goal. He did it through a series of radio talks and whatnot. And while trying to prove God didn't exist, he got saved. And, the, you know, the summation of the book is he basically would come up to somebody and go, okay, 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 you're an atheist. You don't believe in God, whatever. Uh, do you believe that there is good and evil? And if the person said no, then he literally would very strongly go, okay, well, I'm going to go shoot your mother. And, of course, they're going to have a reaction on their face. That's a very bold statement. And he's going, okay, well, if you have a reaction, then you obviously believe in good and evil. And the person has to consent because, yes, we all know there's good and evil. So the next question is, well, if you believe in good and evil, then how do you base that? Are you perfect? Well, no, I'm not perfect. Well, I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, but yet we have a moral compass that gives us a general understanding of good and evil. So that by itself means there has to be a higher being that sets that moral compass. Poof, we just prove God exists or at least a higher being. And then he would work down from there. And I, and I think that's very powerful for us to understand with the law a lot of times is it's not necessarily always what's written. I think about it like going back to the, the story with the parents. You know, I think about it with our kids. Uh, if you've got kids and you tell them to clean their room, you know they're really bad at that game. Um, at least mine are. Um, I personally do not care if my kids make their bed or clean their room. That's not that big of a deal. I ain't got to go up there that much if I'm being honest. However, but it's respect for my home. So it's not the law of clean your room as much as it is the learning the character trait of respect and honor. And I think we miss that a lot of times in the law. We look at it as a no, 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 no thing, and we get all, we get all upset and ruffled and whatever else about it. But God's teaching us something deeper than just a thou shalt, thou shalt not. In the same way as I'm saying make up your bed, I'm really not worried that you're a good bed maker. That is not the purpose. I want you to learn to respect this house, and I want you to learn to respect your mom and me, and I want you to learn to respect this family. A lot of things in the law are about us respecting and honoring our Father, not just the yes, 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 but learning to honor Him. That's good. And that's what I wanted to say before I obviously lost my voice, um, is the idea that it's written on our heart. It's there already. Sometimes we choose to avoid it, right? Um, that brings me to the next question is, didn't Jesus abolish the law? Um, and, and I want to jump in on this one since you guys talked so much from the beginning, but... Um, oh, oh, did just kidding, I'm teasing. Didn't Jesus abolish the law? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Jesus' exact words. I do, not, I mean, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus is saying there's a fulfillment to the law that I've come to bring. The law can only get you so far, and I'm coming to fulfill all that it's supposed to do. 
Now, here's something that he goes on to say. He, he's preaching this message, and he goes on to use all these you've heard it said, right? And, and you may know these verses when I, when I quote one of them. For example, the, the one on lust, it says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, um, with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, listen, you've been told, these teachers have told you these things about the law. When they teach you about the law, they are teaching you the letter of the law. And that's good, but I'm going to bring in the heart behind the letter. Exactly. And I need you to understand something, that what we do as humans is we try to find every loophole and escape clause, and, and we try to find how close can I get to the line before I'm in trouble. And that's not at all what Christ wants for us. I was, I was reading, um, I listened to someone talk the other day about the Autobahn. If, if you know what the Autobahn is, it's, a, it's an interstate system or highway system in Germany but there is no speed limit on the Autobahn. You can drive as fast as you want. Beverly Carter would have a heyday on the Autobahn. <laughs> she would drive so fast, literally her wheels would fall off of her vehicle. You can drive as fast as you want on the Autobahn. And, and, and here's the thing, though, about the Autobahn. No matter how fast you can drive, you know what the average speed limit is? I mean, the average speed on that road is? It's in the 80s. Like, even though people know they can drive 120... Typically, they, they're going to drive in the 70s or 80s, maybe 90s. Like, they don't drive super fast on the Autobahn. Why? There's, there's no restriction. There's no, you can do whatever you want. But inside, they already know what's, what feels right to them. Does that make sense? Um, I, I bet 459, the, the average speed on 459 is probably like 92, you know. Um, but Jesus goes through and he starts saying these, you've heard it said. So, so what was happening is you've got all these people that are saying, well, well, my teachers told me that the law says I can't commit adultery. But no one, didn't, no one said I couldn't do some window shopping, right? No one said I couldn't look at women. No one said I couldn't look at some pornography. No one said I couldn't peep through like David did and see this woman taking a bath. No one said I couldn't do that. As long as I'm not committing adultery, then I'm okay. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. The law was established to, to help you see what you can't do. But you need to understand the heart behind it. The heart behind it is, you don't need to even have lustful intent whenever you're looking at someone. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I'm telling you, don't be angry in your heart. Don't walk in unforgiveness. Don't, don't have this kind of judgment inside of you towards your brother and sister. So Jesus goes in with all of these, you've heard it said, right? He didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled it. He brought us back to a place of don't just look at the letter of the law, Look at the heart and the intent of the law. Were you I, think, I was just going to add one, one of those in there that he said that's interesting to me. Uh, and he quotes them. He said, and you've heard it said, which means that's what the preachers were preaching. That's what the rabbis were saying. You've heard it said, love your enemy and... Does anybody know the rest of it? I mean, love your, love your neighbor and... Hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. Jesus said that's not what was said. The, the Old Testament never says hate your enemy. And that's what they were doing. They were, they were bringing up thoughts that weren't there. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, it's okay. And Jesus said, that's what y'all have heard, but that's not what it is. You're going to love your neighbor, you're going to love your enemy. Mm-hmm. So he brings back the idea of what is the heart of God in the commandments and in the law. And that's what we've got to find out. God's heart for us in the law is absolutely necessary for our life. And we need to read the word of God, finding Jesus in it. When he was on the road to Emmaus with those disciples, he said... Beginning at Moses, he explained who he was, death, burial, and resurrection with Moses and the prophets. So he went in the Old Testament that we struggle with and pulled himself out of it and said, I've been revealed all this time. You've had me with you and not seeing me. And I think we forget that too. When we read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. And I think sometimes you got a problem in the New Testament with people wanting to be judge, jury, and executioner when it wasn't their place. Exactly. you got a group of guys grabbing a woman out of adultery and bringing her to Jesus, and they say, hey, the law says we should stone her. And Jesus doesn't say the law doesn't say that, right? He says, whichever one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. Here's the thing that you got to understand. Those guys weren't, 
The, the law did say that, but you were supposed to take her to a judge. There should have been a place where she got her chance, her day in court, not just being thrown out in the middle of the street and stoned to death. And so Jesus is looking at them and he's like, not one of you guys is on the jury. None of you guys are a judge. None of you guys, you know, it's like, like, yeah, go ahead, stone her if you don't have any sin. And they couldn't do it. And, and so there's this confrontation here where people were trying to take the law into their own hands. And when you take the law into your own hands, you become a lawless society. And so it wasn't that the law was bad. Jesus had to fulfill the law. He didn't abolish it and do away with it. He fulfilled it. Did you want to add something to that or no? Well, I just think, you know, the one, one more note, too, you got to think about, like, when Paul talks about clean and unclean foods, we, like, as a, as a society, get hung up on these little, minute, doctrinal details, and then we just have 900 denominations because of it, and we separate because of it, and we get in fighting. And I think Paul goes, and he translates it even further, talking about clean and unclean foods, and Paul says, look, I don't care what you eat, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, I don't care what you eat, just as long as it's not going to bring somebody else down. Why don't you not worry so much about the food that you're eating and worry about the people that you're arounding and, and, and around? And, hey, if you eat unclean food and it's going to make somebody sin, don't eat it. If, if you're, if you're going to eat it and it's not going to make them sin, whatever. But Paul's saying it's, it's more about the heart of the matter. And I think that's a really good word for us today when we think about the law is it's the heart of the matter. We tend to want to pick this apart. And I think the enemy, we got to remember, the enemy uses Scripture to tempt Jesus, right? He knows the Bible better than all of us in here. So he will use that to try to split his church. He wants to get us fighting over these little silly nuances in the Bible. Well, we can't, we, we can't have bacon, and we can't do this, and we can't. And we sit there and pick at it, and then we've lost the entire heart of the matter. You know, like, like Pastor Gabriel you know, said so well, well, I can go look at whatever I want to as long as I don't commit adultery. Thankfully, Jesus translated that one too, but we lose the heart of the matter. And I think we've got to be very careful when we're looking and studying the law to read what it says, but understand the heart of the matter. Our God who wrote the law, is a, God is love. He is love. Whole, that's, all, that's him as a being. And we've got to be able to see that part of it, too. Um, something Dad mentioned, we'll go to the next one. We only have one more, uh, two more. Um, something that Dad mentioned earlier that I think is good, too, is that the law was before Moses. Like the moral law was before Moses. It was, it was with Adam and Eve. Something when people ask me, they say, well, Gabriel, what about the laws? What about, you know, all the ceremonial things? What about the clothes and the tattoos and the pork? And the, those tend to be the three big ones, right? What, what about those things? And, and, and if those things can change, then what about things like homosexuality? What about things like murder? What about things? So if some can change, do others change, right? Like we've got these questions. And so here's what I tell people. You need to, first of all, read the Bible in its entirety. Don't read the Bible in just one chapter or one book. Because in the entirety, you see the whole story. And when you read the Bible in its entirety, you'll, you'll see that in the, in the first book in Genesis, they were vegetarians at first. So does that mean we need to all be vegetarians? No, it changed. They went from vegetarians, and there's a specific place where the Bible says that you can eat uh, meat. You can eat whatever animal. And then the Bible changes again later and says, no, there's only certain animals you can eat. And then it changes again with Peter and it says, eat whatever you want to eat. Okay, I'm just showing you ceremonial laws changed over time. Cultural laws changed over time. Moral laws never changed. And so if it's a moral law in Genesis, it's a moral law in Revelation. And we need to understand there are some things that never change. And those are the things we need to hold on to. Um, just, just, we're not going to get a, off this one. I, I know, but just throwing, a, just throwing in a thought out here on this. Uh, a lot of y'all are too young to know this. Some of us older folk get this, but we're up here in, we're all wearing plaid shirts, which is creepy, but still, that, that we, we're up we here. We called open, each other. We are, right? We're up here in open, we're, we're, we're just open collars and wearing jeans and tennis shoes and boots and whatever. So we're up here very casually. And I, I would just say, I remember the day. When a preacher didn't get in the pulpit or get on the platform, it wasn't a stage, and we didn't have a band, we had a choir, and we had a platform and a pulpit, we had to wear a tie, we had to wear a suit, and things have changed. That's a part of culture, and that's a part of ceremony, and those things change, and that's what Pastor Gabriel is saying, and now you get blessed because of it, because you can come comfortable, and we would never have anything to drink in, in, in a church, never but those things change because they're not an offense to God. That's not about moral law. That's about cultural law. That's, a, that's what we deal with in ceremonial law. And we don't have to keep that. Those are things we just kind of make up in our local church how we feel comfortable. And it becomes the law of our church. 
Does that make sense to anybody on that? And the other thing, too, even on circumcision as a part, who wants to talk about that? No, but not me. I know, but just saying. And we're off the Question there, number five. Yeah, there were, well, there were people in the church. There were people in the church back in the New Testament, in the New Testament, and they were called Judaizers, and they were the ones that were the legalists. They wanted everybody, bless God, keep the law, or you can't be a part of us. They wanted them in Christ. They wanted them to be born again, but you've got to keep that law. And they were making everybody get circumcised, and it became a big deal. And finally, Paul talked to everybody. They sent him to Jerusalem to talk to James in the church. So Peter was not the Pope. James was. So sent him to Jerusalem. And, and he's in there talking to the guys. And he said, it's the circumcision of the heart we've got to deal with here, y'all. Not the body. So what happened? He brought the law from the physical and put it in the spiritual where it belongs. And that's what God's trying to get into us about this Old Testament. It's a heart issue. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm done. I started laughing when you started talking. I remember that you probably don't remember this. I remember the first time you didn't wear a tie on stage when oh, I was a kid. Yeah. And I remember someone coming up to me and they were so mad. Like they were mad. They were like, I cannot believe your dad. And I was like, what did he do? And I was like, he did not wear a tie. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> great. I'm not wearing one either. Um, all right. Why does the Old Testament seem so violent? We got to kind of move quickly here. Why does the Old Testament seem so violent? There's so many death penalties and so many wars. They deserved it. They deserved it. That's what they get, man, those suckers. Um, uh, I, I actually did a little bit on this one. Um, one of the things I noticed when it comes to the Old Testament, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and, and uh, progressive Christianity, if you don't know that term, you, you might want to learn it. It's the new form of Christianity today. Right. So progressive Christianity um, essentially says, I, I actually had the chance to listen to an entire message um, that this progressive pastor preached, and it was horrible. Uh, by the end of the message, he talked about truth and how truth is an absolute and how truth is, is fluid and how truth is incarnate and how, how the Holy Spirit is here to teach us new truth. And, and then he goes into this place where we are truth and your truth is all that matters and you need to live out your truth. You see what's happening? Um, and, and so in your truth, it doesn't matter what you do. It just matters that you're being honest with yourself. Um, and so one of the things that, that I notice in progressive Christianity is they start taking, and this guy did this, they start taking the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. And you'll hear those terms nowadays a lot. They're becoming very popular to say there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. And now you and I know it's one God all the way through. He is God in the Old Testament. He's God in the New. He's God in Genesis. He's God in Revelation. He is the same God. He never changes. But whenever we look at the violence in the Old Testament, people want to put him in a box and say, that's someone else. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. The violence in the Old Testament and the death penalties in the Old Testament, as extreme as they seem like they are, they do not show how mean God is. They show how bad sin is. The purpose is not to show the meanness of God, but the, the, um, the terribleness, if that's a word, if I can make up, of sin. And it, it was meant to show you that you and I don't want to have anything to do with sin. We don't want to touch sin. We don't want to get close to sin. But inevitably, as humans, what we do is we try to get as close to sin as we possibly can without crossing the line. That's what we do. And if we would remember that Old Testament then we would remember that sin is terrible. It's bad. Um, I was actually reading this morning. My morning reading today was Hosea, right? Hosea is a super weird book. Like If you ever read Hosea, you need to check it out. Like The very first thing God does is he tells the prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute. Like Right off the bat, I'm like, God, I think I missed something, right? Like If God tells me that, I'm like, I've missed my calling. I should be a doctor. Um, and so Hosea, Hosea has to do, as a sermon illustration, he marries a prostitute. Whole story goes on. But in Hosea 13, and I'm listening to this, and I know what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm listening to Hosea 13. In Hosea 13, it's all about you've worshipped other gods. You've sacrificed your kids to idols. You've done these terrible things. And now I'm going to punish you. Now I'm going to bring in another country to punish you for the sins that you've committed. But then Hosea 14 says, but if you'll just repent, if you'll just change, if you'll stop worshiping idols, if you'll start worshiping me, what happened to God? He's the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, as violent as people say it is, there's still mercy and grace for the repentant sinner. 
There's still places where God wants to touch and change your life and draw you close. It's just, it's just a difference in how it was worded. Something else to think about in the Old Testament, they say things like, um, uh, they say things like, utterly destroy, right? We're going to utterly destroy this army or utterly destroy this city or this country or whatever the case is. But then you keep reading and you find places where those people are back. God told them to utterly destroy the Amalekites, but then later you see Amalekites mentioned um, two, two chapters later or three chapters later, and you're like, wait, I thought they utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but now I'm saying they didn't utterly destroy. Something you need to remember is we told you earlier in the, in the message today that the Bible was broken down into categories. One of those categories was the category of poetry. In the category of poetry, you've got a book called the Song of Solomon. There's lots of different things said in the Song of Solomon. We're not going to go into any of those today because my daughter's here. But in the Song of Solomon, one of the things it says, it says, your neck, talking about his lover, he says, your neck is like a tower of ivory. Now, does that mean that this woman had a big old long giraffe neck? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It just means that it's smooth, right? Like no moles or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what the case is. Like you got this smooth, long neck. We don't take that term literally, right? It's, it's, uh, it's hyperbole. It's, it's, just, it's just showing you something. The same is true when it comes to the books of history and war. They use warfare terms. Yep. Contemporaries of the Bible um, in Egypt, there's writings of kings that said, I utterly destroyed this army. And then if you continue to history, they still fought the army for seven more years. All he's saying is just like if you were to um, watch your favorite football team, you'd say, man, we killed that other team. Did you really? Did you do anything? No, you didn't do anything. You watched on TV. Did the players kill anyone? No, they would have all been arrested, right? <laughs> it's, it's terminology, it's hyperbole to help you understand. So, so just because you read in the Old Testament, utterly destroy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they wiped out every single human that lived in that country. Jericho, yeah, that was one I heard. I'll skip Jericho. We'll talk about that one later. Did you want to say something about violence and war and death penalties? Violence and war and death penalties. Number one, next time we have a date night, I'm going to lead with your neck is like a tower <laughs> of ivory, babe. You know, it's a, those, those good old pickup lines right, from uh, Solomon, Solomon there. I love that. I, I think, too, I think we're remiss, though, if we don't, we don't take pause and look around and, and just take a breath and look at society today. I mean, does anybody want to raise their hand and say they don't think we live in a violent society right now? So, I mean, that is reality that we're in. And to go back, Pastor Mike and I were talking about this uh, before the service, and he mentioned it in the pre-service, you know, a, a lot of things in the Old Testament are if-then. If you'll do this, then I will bless you. If you don't do this, then this will happen. And, and there's these examples of these wars and this violence, and if you do this, this will happen, and this will, be, this will happen and come in there. We've stepped away from that as a society. We, we don't like that because, that, that, again, that gives us lanes to have to stay in, and we've walked away from that if-then kind of you know, understanding consequences and blessings, and we've, we've moved into this lawless. So I would go as far as to answer that question and say that we're far more violent today than we were in the Old Testament. Mm. Far, far more violent. And let me go a step further. We're far more accepting of that violence mm. than we were in that. We get appalled by what we read in the Old Testament, but think of the movies we may go home and watch. Think of what's on the news at 6 o'clock in the morning. And we go through there. And I think that's part of where we lose things when we talk about the Old Testament and whatnot is that we, we, have, this, we have this nature to want to be appalled by the strictness there, but yet because we've stepped away from the law and because we've stepped away from following God's heart and letting his moral compass guide us, letting him guide us in what we do, then we're in the world that we are in now, which is extremely violent, extremely harmful, uh, very hurtful in that. You know. No, I was just going to just pitch one more thought on that. It was in Deuteronomy 28, those that are charismatics especially, uh, but other, other believers, we like Deuteronomy 28, and we read the first 15 verses, and we want to memorize those, blessed shall I be, blessed shall I be when I go in the city, and when I come out, blessed shall I be at my home, blessed shall I be, everything's blessed. We love the first 15 verses, but there's 68 verses in the chapter, and the next 53 are cursed. We don't memorize those because we like the if, not the thens. We, 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 we want the good out of the Old Testament, but we don't want the balance of it. And the balance is the if-then principle. Yeah. Um, last question is, is this, uh, and, and, and I'm, I promise we'll, we'll hurry. Numbers and Leviticus are super boring. What's the point? 
I actually threw this one out there. Um, so, and this literally came from me several years ago. I would do the one-year Bible, and you read through, and, you know, you get Genesis, and it's pretty good stuff. And that first part of Exodus is pretty good. There's a lot of action going on. If you haven't figured me out either, I'm extremely simple, <laughs> and I've also probably got a mild case of ADD, so I can derail in a heartbeat. And then you hop on into the back end of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you're just reading, and, you know, oh, my gosh, we're talking about cubits and these exact measurements and how much wool goes into whatever uh, – robe we're doing and how much, I mean, it is incredibly precise and it is mind-numbingly boring, if I'm being honest. Um, Just bearing my soul there on that one. And I was reading through it one time, doing the one-year Bible, going through that, and I had this moment where I felt like God really kind of laid something on my heart, and he said, you know, I just want you to understand I'm an orderly God. I'm not a God of chaos. I'm not a God of structure. And what Leviticus and Numbers and books like that show us, again, we have to, uh, going back to my clean your room thing, it's not about your bed being made, it's about you learning respect and honor. A lot of things in scripture are like that. It's not about me knowing how many cubits the exact size of the tabernacle was, but it's about me knowing that God is an orderly and precise God, and he wants me to live a life that's not in chaos. He didn't call us to be chaos, because remember, that was the tabernacle back then in the Old Testament. That was the dwelling of God. That was the the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit then. Now, who is the tabernacle? Where is that tabernacle now? It's right here. It's not this building, because when we leave, this building becomes sheetrock and concrete, and there's nothing holy about this building until you guys walk in the door. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are where God lives and dwells. And we have to understand when we read stuff like Leviticus and whatnot, there's a lot of good information. There's a lot of good things in there, but it also shows us that God is a God of structure. God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos. And if your life is chaos then we need to examine that because Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. Just just as God knows how many cubits were in the exact tabernacle, he knows what's going on in your heart right now. He knows what you're dealing with. Just as he knew how much exact gold went into the lampstands and everything that was on the altar, he knows the exact amount of pain you're dealing with right now. And he knows the exact amount of hurt that's going on in your heart or the chaos or the job or whatever, fill in the blank. That's how precise God is, and that's how much he knows about us. And I thought that was the most powerful, revealing thing. Those have become two of my favorite books for that reason. Not because I I still don't enjoy reading them, pure honesty there, but because when I read them, I see the precision of God. I see the order of God. I see the structure of God and the desire that he has in my heart and in that in my life. Yeah, And, And really, something else you need to remember is the details reveal God's plan. When we read about the tabernacle or later on about the temple, it reveals God's plan. It always reveals Jesus. Everything in the tabernacle that was established reveals Jesus. There's, there was a, a place that you go that you had to wash before you entered the temple, right, or entered the tabernacle. What do we do nowadays whenever we get born again? We go under the water, come back up. They had to do that. There's places in there, they talk about the bread that had to be put out every day. And Jesus says, I am that bread, like everything in the tabernacle points to Christ. Yeah. I did a sermon one time, a long time ago, back when we were at the skate center and we smelled like feet. Um, and it was all about the tabernacle and, and the temple and, and how all that stuff pointed to Christ. And it was very nerdy and, and probably none of you that were there remember it. Um, and maybe we'll do it again one day, but uh, we don't have time to get into it. But I just, I, I want to say that too, that, that every detail, every detail that is mentioned shows you how much God cares about you. Yeah. It all points to Christ. It all reveals his plan. And it all shows how much he cares about you. Let me end today with this, this last little thought, and then we'll, we'll close. Or this is the closing. Um, when we talk about the Old Testament, we talk about the law. Something I want to point out to you today is that the law is like a mirror. Think of the law as a mirror. Right? Um, the other day I was cutting grass and I was weed eating. And as I was weed eating, I could feel stuff hitting my face. Right? Have you ever done that before? You're weed eating, you can feel the grass and stuff hitting your face. And, and then you come inside, and, and what do you do? You immediately go and you look in the mirror. Why? Because the mirror is going to show me all the stuff that's on my face. The law is like a mirror. It shows you the sin. It reveals the sin in your life. Romans 3.20 says this, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Paul says this, he says, Just obeying the law, just doing the things the law says, doesn't make you right with God. He says the law is there to reveal the sin in your life. And I think sometimes we forget that about the law. Sometimes we get so caught up in our freedom 
that our freedom leads us down a path of sin. Sometimes we get so caught up in, don't judge me, you can't tell me. No, 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 I'm not telling you anything. I'm showing you the mirror of the word of God. The mirror shows you what's wrong and what's right. There's some of us, we, we can't go out of our house without spending time in front of a mirror, right? We got to see what's happening. But here's the cool thing. While the mirror reveals the sin, while the mirror reveals the grass on my face or the mud on my face, here's the cool thing, is that it's Jesus that comes in and cleanses us. So we see the fullness of the book now. We see the whole story. The Old Testament reveals some things inside of us, and the New Testament shows us how to get them clean. 1 John 1, 7, and you can stand up with me today. 1 John 1, 7, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Old Testament, the law, reveals the sin. The New Testament, the blood of Christ, cleanses us of all sin. we got to have both. If I were to go look in the mirror and I see mud all over my face, and I say, man, look at all that mud on my face. I'm like, all right, Perry, let's go out. You know, it's time to go to church. Perry's like, you got to do something about that face, right? Like, your face is jacked up. So i got to do something about it. Once the sin has been revealed, now it's my responsibility to do something about it. People say all the time, they say, well, Gabriel, what about... What about unreached people groups? What about people that have never heard the name of Jesus? What about people that have never read the Bible? I want to tell you, first of all, the law of God is written on man's heart. From the beginning, we know what's right and what's wrong. And I can't answer all of those questions. I mean, a lot of that's up to God, what he does with with that kind of thing. But here's the thing I can answer. Once you've had it revealed to you, once sin is revealed to you, from that point forward, you got to do something about it. It's your responsibility. And it's not by just living according to the law. It's not by looking in the mirror over and over and over again. The mirror won't cleanse you. It's only through Christ. Why don't you bow your heads with me this morning? And let's just take a minute to consider the mirror. And I believe the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can lead us in all things. And the Holy Spirit reveals the scriptures to us. And, and I believe today that even though we may not know all the law, we may not know all the Old Testament, maybe there's a lot of that we kind of skimmed over. I want to tell you something today. Just like we said about the details in Leviticus and Numbers, just like we said about the details of the temple and, and, and how many cubits things are, God looks at your life today and he cares about every single detail of your life. He doesn't want you to walk out of the house with one blade of grass on your face. He cares about every detail. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to wash you. He wants to make you whole today. He loves you and cares about you. He wants to show you what's going on. He doesn't want you to be like that guy that's got food in his teeth that says, why didn't anybody ever tell me? He's telling you today. He's telling you today there's some areas of your life that might need to change. There's some areas of your life that might contain sin. And he wants you to get cleansed. Not by doing good. Not by trying to be good. But simply by accepting his son. Accepting his sacrifice. So there may be some of us in the room today that we need to give everything we've got to him. Today we need to, we need to ask him to forgive us of our sins. Today we need to accept the sacrifice of his son, that it was good for us, that it covers all of our sins. I'm going to pray for us today, and if you want that prayer today, I encourage you to pray with us. And, and just like we said before about the, about the law, that it's not the letter of the law, it's not what you say. We're going we're gonna to talk to God today, we're not saying magic words. It's about what's happening in your heart this morning, and what God's doing in your life. And so I encourage you, even as I pray, that you would pray along with me, or that you would, you would pray a prayer similar to mine, and today in your heart you would mean it. And in your life you would be transformed.
So God, today we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that your word tells a story of your love for man. That, that from the very beginning until the very end, even the Old Testament, even the parts we think are boring, God, we thank you that it tells us a story, that you love every detail of who we are, that you care about us, that you know exactly where we are today. God, I thank you that your word tells a story, not just of punishment, but of grace. God, your word tells a story about how bad sin is and how good you are. And God, we may not understand it all, but we do understand today that there is a law of God that's written on our hearts. And God, today we may have some things revealed to us that we don't like. We may see some areas of our life, God, that we know aren't right with you, some areas that you don't approve of. And so today we ask you to forgive us. Today we ask you to forgive us. Today we repent. We change our mind. We can see the flaw. We see the issue. And we come to Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness. We come to you and you alone to be cleansed. So Jesus, we accept your sacrifice. And we receive you today as our Lord and Savior. We choose to follow you and not our culture. We choose to follow you and not our own ways, God. We choose to follow you and not our family, God. We choose to follow you above all else. So today we turn over our lives to you. Forgive us and cleanse us and wash us today according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.